Well, I had the chance to uh, be in London last week or the week before. I don't really remember for DevOps UK. I haven't been to a DevOps conference in a long time. Uh, I guess it was two weeks ago because they they just posted the recording of the talk that I gave and they noted that it was given two weeks ago. So I'm going to assume I'm going to go with what they said there instead of researching myself. And uh, well, first of all, you know, the DevOps people are nice. They're, they're, uh, there's two types of there's, there's at least two types of conferences that, that I go to speak at. I don't, I don't know about you, Ben, but the first type is what you could call, there's some real professionals and, and they, uh, they get very excited about, uh, you know, checking on you, making sure you show up. They always want to have lots of, uh, lots of, uh, pre-arrangement stuff. They want you to send your slides ahead of time They're They seem very professional. Uh, and, uh, they, they, uh, that can be annoying. I guess, and then there's there's the uh, uh, the people more like DevOps where they're just cool. They're just like, hey, that's great. Come talk here. Here's some emails to remind you that it happened, and then you uh, you kind of just walk in there, and there's the AV person, and uh, you know you got to get your microphone, and then maybe someone from the conference might come up and be like, hey, uh, how's it going? Everything good? And uh, and then you're like, yeah, it's great. And they're like, cool. Enjoy your talk. And uh, they're they're super nice. They're chilled they, out. Which is they good. know who the talent is. They know you've done it before. That's what it is. Like, oh, Cote, <laughs> relax. Put your feet up. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, he's got this covered. They uh, even had. They even I had. A... Sorry, go I was going to say they even had bottles of water up there, right? So they know what's going on. That's the sign of a good. Uh, and and you don't want that that uh, that sparkling water with gas water. Because I don't know about you, but that is not refreshing when you want to clear your throat. You want you want some you want some liquid watery water, not not this man-made stuff. And what, what kind of sadist leaves that underneath the podium on the stand? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just waiting to blow up. But I had a different question before mm. we get on to conference food, which I'm sure you also partake partook in. Uh, how did you find the cycling experience difference between Amsterdam mm. and London? Because I think London is more like Mad Max and the Thunderdome. Yeah. Whereas like Amsterdam is so chilled out and so relaxed. It's it's a this is this is this is a, a, a interesting astute question here, Ben. Now I'm going to give you a trick answer, which is I don't really when I go to London, I don't really cycle in London because I haven't t- one. I've done it once or twice but i haven't really taken the time to research how those whole city bikes things work i think you have to like return them to it's san san santander how do you say that santander santander uh sponsors it now so they're all over the place i forget what it was back when i first moved over here but i think you've got to go from one santander docking station to the next which is totally fine right uh but yeah like uh, when I look around, it looks like, I mean, Mad Max is a pretty good description of it. it like I look around and I'm like, I think if I biked here, I'd get killed. Right. Yeah. And not, or even, even just being a pedestrian. Ah, uh, yes. Not, not to it's mention like... the fact, not to mention the fact that like, you know, uh, I, I, I am of the part of the world who drives on different sides of the road. So like, I, I just, I would get very confused about what was happening and probably, you know, I'd get hit by someone just cause. Thankfully, the parts of London that I'm always in, uh, you know, they, they put on the street, look left or look right yeah. uh, as, as is appropriate, which I find very handy. But I always feel bad because I have this habit 
that I learned at a lung, a lung age, at a young age, and it's reinforced when you're cycling, right? Because when you're cycling, even in a nice place like Amsterdam, I always have in my head, my goal is to not get killed and not kill anyone else. So like, you just got to have <laughs> complete situational awareness. And so I'm always looking all, all ways when I'm crossing the street. And I just know there's some localers who are like, uh, stupid foreigner, you don't need to look that way. But you know, that's- yeah. I think that's true. It's very noble of you not to want to damage anyone. I, I think that's very, <laughs> Thank you. Uh, that's very good. And I, and I feel like the cycle lanes in London, it's a bit like the wildebeest scene in The Lion King, trying to ah, cross yes. one of those things, right? There's yeah. a 50-50 chance you won't come out of it alive. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think you do you remember the like, the like Manhattan messenger messenger like sort of like idea that existed in the 90s where where like you know in in manhattan there would be these like bike people on messengers with messenger bags which since became very popular and you know they would just be sort of like grungy like cyclers who would go around delivering pieces of paper between the firms and you know i'm sure there was at least one movie made where they were some adventuring swashbucklers uh you know and some romance involved but i feel like that might be what it would be like to to bike in london you would just be constantly like going between cars hang on to some of them like that guy in back to the future skateboarding around you know it would just every now and then you just you'd like uh you'd like skid over the the hood or as you would say bonnet of some car and be like hey i'm trying to drive here i, I don't know yeah i think you're right i think there's a scene a little bit like that in hackers as well and that's from the 90s yes. isn't it I reckon yeah. uh, I reckon it might be in there. But yeah, they all you know those folks, they have the fixies they call them, don't they? Yes. No, gears, no brakes. Yeah. It's just yeah. like everything through the pedals. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's just living the dream. Yeah. Proper but thing. I think I think what I need to do is learn how those rent a bikes work and I just need to uh, I just need to bite the bullet or bite the car and uh start start biking around there because because you, you'll probably bite the pavement <laughs> that's right <laughs> yeah but but it would be nice because there are like you know to be fair right like i i walk around a lot uh when when i'm in london and uh it's actually more or less a lot calmer than uh than certain intersections and areas are so biking would be totally fine it wouldn't be a uh a huge deal but you know also on that note i i picked up two bags of weird crisps as you would say how do you, how do you say crisps or crisps how do you say that what's the plural crisps crisps you got to really yeah. just like crisps now see i can't do it i'm gonna have to practice a bag of crisps oh okay so there are kind of two s's there at the end hmm. anyways I got I got one that was the uh, I'll put some links to the reviews that my my daughters and I did, but we did one that was the uh, basically it tastes like charcoal grilled steak. It was pretty amazing, like it was very genuine. And and then we got another one that was the Herefordshire sausage and mustard flavored <laughs> chips. For everyone else in the UK, that's Herefordshire. There you go. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I, I only I only know how to speak English from the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> oh, you murdered that one! Murdered it. T tell but me, I, tell me what, what's up with that part of the country? What do they do? A lot of sausage and mustard. Yeah, I mean, there's there's lots and lots of areas that are that are uh, you know very um, big agricultural zones in the UK. Uh -huh. Herefordshire would be one of them, I suppose. Herefordshire. Uh, there's, there's lots of them. Yeah. Okay. 
Huh. Well, now, if I were to tell you you were going to have her, her, Herefordshire sausage and mustard chips, would you be like, oh, I know that flavor. I know what that's yeah. going to taste like. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, for sure. I mean, I don't know if we do, 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 do US, UK sort of do sausage in the same way in the, in the u.s i think of a hot dog right and, yeah, and in the yeah, uk yeah. it's it's kind of artisanal almost you know there's all sorts you can get in sausages. yeah you yeah. can get all kinds of weird and wonderful things yeah well you know for our our uh our frequent sausage corner section of the podcast i think i would say in this in the states there's only three types of sausages one of which we don't consider a sausage you've pointed it out already the hot dog I think if you were to do a survey, little person on the street thing, no one would say a hot dog was a sausage. It's right. its own thing. But as we know, it is a sausage. And and then you have, what would you call it? You have like, what is the equivalent over here? They have, I forget, I don't know what they call it here in the Netherlands, but it's the sausage that you can either buy off the shelf or in the 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 cool section. That's basically just like ground up stuff in a sausage that's maybe about an inch thick. And it usually comes in like a deep red tube and uh, like, uh, like, you know, you slice it up and it's, it's like not that great, but it's, it's kind of like a typical sausage you would have. And then you have like bar barbecue sausages and those are just their own things. And I guess, you know, there's Italian sausages as well. So you've, you've got that. And, and I'm sure the nation of Italy is like, yes, which of the 50 different types is it? <laughs> can you be more specific yeah yeah, yeah yeah but an italian sausage basically just means uh usually like a spicy sausage made with pork is, is what so you got going on there. i think if if we've got any listeners left if they can tell us first of all are there any sausages that are kind of protected right you get european protections don't you for different uh, yeah. things right that's right uh, the cornish pasty would be an example of that from the uk mm. right it's protected are there any protected sausages i'd love to know and also as a sort of plant-based diet person if you've got any top tips on you know plant-based sausages things i might not have tried yet let me know I'd, uh, I'd love to hear them. So, yeah, for that, for our one listener who's left. Well, and that's that's uh, <laughs> that's sausage corner. Well, <laughs> that's it. Sausage. So that's it for this sausage episode. Until next time. <laughs> well, I I thought as one of our our uh, our main topics, <coughs> we'll see if we have time for for a second one. But I came across a survey this morning. It was it was from you know the U.S. that said uh, it it was something like you know. 50 or 60 percent of people have uh, uh, are, have some interest or thoughts know about chat GPT and AI and that kind of stuff. But only 14 percent of them had actually used it. And that kind of like added some numbers to this intuition. I've been built intuition, this gut, this thought I've been building up over uh, the past maybe 90 days or so. Uh, that is like there's not actually that many people who have used this thing. And so sort of like that's why it's easy for there to be all this like both hype and paranoia around it uh, about, you know, it's going to take over the world or like threaten things or that it just like, you know, equally that it does all these these magical things. Like I was at a dinner with a bunch of uh, some uh, uh, executive types uh, last week. That's why I was in London last week. 
And uh, of course, we had a conversation about AI stuff. And I think, you know, there were there was actually out of six of us, like half of us had actually used it directly and used it frequently. But then, if you know, the conversation we had with the other three people is they were just it was just sort of like, oh, this thing is like potentially scary and it could do all sorts of weird things. And what, what's going to go on with it? And so when I saw that 14 percent of people had actually used it, like it kind of clarified in my head, I use it all the time, almost every day. And I think once you get around at least using chat GPT and even things like mid journey, like you use it after a while and you realize like, oh, this this thing is not a big deal <laughs> or not as not as big of a deal in as magic. It's not magic, right? Like it's it's really just a tool that used properly is uh, is magical but it's not like some gigantic, uh, big, I don't know, thing. Now, the thing with computers is every year they get better. So maybe it would get better. But so far, and, and I, I think I'm copying this from some commentator, but my reflection on it has been that like, there is, and I know, I know there's people who very stri strictly like to say, instead of saying AI, they'll say LLMs or uh, something generation, which I guess is technically accurate. But and ruining the joke that I'm about to make here is like whenever you use an AI, you realize that there's pretty much no intelligence to it. Like there's no like, like I try to get it to write lots of text for me and it just like, it kind of does it, but you can see that it's not really doing a great job. So you have to go in and like help it out a lot, right? It's great. It's great as like a, a, a um, an entry level person who would do a lot of the drudge work and the toil for you, but you really got to go in there and uh, human it up, uh, so to speak. Now that said, yeah. I've used it to generate like Python scripts and stuff. And that for my use is pretty awesome. Like it just like works and does stuff. However, when I was discussing that with, at that dinner I was at, someone did raise up the point that like, yeah, but like, can you have it like go in and like refactor things for you and evolve it and add new features? And like, where, where, where are we as far as like, you know, you could generate those initial scripts, but then like two years later, what's the deal with that? And, you know, may, I guess I haven't really tested out, go into the script and modify it so that now you can uh, work with Apple pay. That would be fun. I should, I should have the scripts and say like, make this compatible with, uh, with uh, key passes or whatever. Uh, Maybe it would spit out like five pages of things I need to install, which, yeah. which would be cool. But I thought I would with that with that opening monologue there. I know you've been looking at it from uh, stuff that you put around with. What, what have you been doing with, well, with the AI stuff? I, I've got loads of responses to 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 what oh, you yes. said, really. So so yeah. Let's yeah, make this interactive, as they say. <laughs> I have been playing with it. Yeah, definitely, and. Um, first of all, you're absolutely right. You know, the more that you play with it, you do start to notice the r the rough edges and the things that it can and can't do. Um, and one way that you can definitely see that is uh, what what I've been doing recently is is learning how to run it locally. So just running it on mm. regular desktop hardware, no sort of fancy graphics cards and all that sort of stuff, just laptop sort of hardware. And when you run it on that sort of hardware, and you start to then be constrained by things like um, processing speed, memory, that sort of stuff. 
you have to use smaller large language models, right? So that so that the models shrink in size so that you can fit them in the environment that you've got. So a, a regular laptop, maybe a 16 gig laptop or whatever, it might be able to take maybe a seven gig model, something like that. So it's going to load it all into memory and then use that for its parsing. And then when you then chat with that model, its responses are, are, are much more dulled than they are when you're using something like ChatGPT online. So you really, really notice then that actually, yeah, I can see that this is a this is a system that is mimicking behavior. It doesn't actually have behavior. It just sort of right. mimics it, right? And and it and the other thing I've sort of learned recently, I suppose, from reading around and listening to others in the space and what they have to say about it, is that um, you know there are there are various sort of levels of of dumbness that you can experience, and there are ways that you can tune these models just through the setup of the model to sort of make it behave in in radically different ways um a good example oh, right. is, is is setting the prompt to be okay whenever you respond to me respond as a pirate and it will change all of its responses so it's ah lad i uh, think you should try this it sounds sure. very much like it's from the West Country, which is where I sort of live. So, <laughs> so, so that's kind of fascinating that you can, you know, you can sort of change these behaviors, and the behavior itself is is kind of dependent on the on the back end model. And the other thing you said there was was about coding. You know, wouldn't it be nice if you could get it to elaborate on your code for you? And there are several models that have sprung up that are that are tuned to do just that. So an example would mm. be um, the Star Coder model. I think I hope I'm remembering that correctly. Folks, get in touch if I'm if I'm making a mess of this. You know, set us straight. Uh, but a Star Coder model. Um, one of the things that that can do is take a piece of code that you've already written in the prompt, and in that piece of code you can sort of add a comment to say like fill out this section because it's not <laughs> you know i want more like you said maybe make it work with apple pay or make it do something that it's right. not currently doing and it will go away and have a look at that and come back with code that f fills out the middle part of that particular um piece of code that you've got so the the learning from that is that there are there's not just chat gpt's gpt4 model there are lots of models hundreds right, of models right. thousands of models and they're all fine-tuned to work against perhaps subtly different use cases or perhaps created in the first place with different um uh, uh data right so you can you can get uh, ones that are open source that are based on completely open source data, ones that are closed source that are based on data sets and um, um, uh, data that wasn't, you know, made available publicly and you can't test, for example, you know, what's in there. Some that are clean, some that are specific to coding problems or um, uh, customer service problems or whatever it might be. There are There are literally hundreds of them. So it's a really fascinating space to get into because you then start to to really realize yeah actually this is a tool and it it's not necessarily something that you should be afraid of it's just in some cases a time-saving measure right and in, and in other cases it needs a lot of work before it be even remotely useful so you know I, I i'm not i'm not worried about it i think it's just really exciting the sort of things that it can do
Well, I, I think, I think you know, I haven't done stuff locally or changed different models, but I think that would be the next level, at least for me, of interestingness, right? And I mean, well, so so first of all, like, how do you, like, is, is it difficult to make a model or do you just give it a bunch of stuff and it just figures it out? I haven't tried making my own model, right? But there is, there are, you, the first thing that you need is, is I think tons and tons of data, right? So you do mm. need a large data set from somewhere and and usually that is an example would be um there's a there's a data set called the stack or the big stack i think and it's it's basically based on stack overflow sort of mm, data right. so you imagine all the all the information that's going into stack overflow over years you know pulling that out and cleaning that so that it's removed all the sort of information that shouldn't be there like personally identifiable information for gdpr or you know just removing all the sort of stuff that you don't need that's the first sort of exercise and it's i, I can imagine that's quite time consuming i think yeah but then you take all that stuff and run it through these um these um uh, chat model makers, you know, things, uh, I think an example might be something like TensorFlow. Like I said, I've not really looked into it very much. The creation of the model is something that I've not dabbled with. But, um, you know, it can go through those steps to create you finally a sort of binary file that can then be parsed by these, um, by these model parsers. But then it's not over. You can then also fine tune that again using things like language chains where you could maybe take a generative model that's good at talking right can actually create responses that look realistic um, and maybe add to that some of your own proprietary information maybe technical documentation for a product for example it's one that comes up quite regularly and then the model will then be able to answer questions about that product mm. Another example is Kubernetes. There's a there's one called uh, KHGPT, uh, which you can run. Uh, it's, 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 it relies on a general model, so something like um, a GPT-4. It relies on that general model, but then understands Kubernetes, and it acts like a bit like a Kubernetes operator would act. So, for example, yeah. you can give it your cluster, and if it spots that one of your apps is misbehaving in that cluster, it can start to re recommend remedies and troubleshoot that problem so that you can make that problem go away. So there's all sorts of specialisms and ways that you can modify these, these general purpose models afterwards to make them more fine-tuned and useful. Yeah, like, like it seems like, I mean, I'm sure, well, I would hope someone, people are already doing this, but it seems like, you know, in the Spring community, they would like make their own like model for doing whatever, right? Like, you know, if anything, you know, you could have a, a, a first line of like reviewing contributions <laughs> or, or you know, just asking questions about how to use things or looking in, into the uh, the code base or just generating code. And because uh, there's there's a lot of content about, doc there's documentation, there's all the different versions, there's all the source code for Spring. And then there's also, stuff that uses it and conversation around it. So you've got like a huge body of knowledge you could start using to uh, have a little spring programmer at, at your side. I think so. Yeah, I think I think I don't think I would say any of the models I've seen so far, any of this stuff I've experimented with so far has given me any confidence that a model will be able to make a decision about something, yes, like which is the best way to go. 
I don't, I haven't seen much that does that very well, but I know there are lots of startups and lots of folks working on things like, um, um, flow processing, you know, where, where, okay, I've got this administrative function that I need to do, like, I don't know, booking a vacation or whatever it might be. Um, you know, within these parameters, here's sort of what I want, go away and sort it out. And it, it will then split that into multiple tasks that can then right, be broken right, right. down and then tackled by the um, by the AI and then sort of, you know, start to make suggestions or whatever. And I guess it's all based on waiting. You know, it was a, there's a probability waiting that this is probably what you want, so I'll do this. But they're not great at decision-making, I wouldn't have thought. I, I haven't seen much of that anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, when, one day I need to make some, uh, some, I don't know, local way of running it and just like feed it everything I've ever written. Cause I always want to be like, just write it. Like I wrote it. <laughs> like, like I I've even tried some experiments to like give it my writing and say like, how would you describe this writing? Cause then you can like feed it back to it at any point. And I would assume also if you run things locally, you can like give it a lot more information. Like that's the problem I always have with, wanting to use it for writing nowadays is you can you you reach a maximum character or, or token or whatever like you reach a maximum amount of text that you can give it and then you can also see if you're like working iteratively on a chunk of text you can almost detect when it starts to forget stuff from the beginning like it's just kind of throwing off text that uh it can no longer fit into whatever it's it's buffer I don't know what people yeah, call context. it. Yeah, they call it a context. The context, yeah. uh, you know, kind of limited in size right at the present time. But again, I saw something just last week that was about a company that's um, figured out a much more efficient way to do context so that they can mm. grow to larger in size. So the, the, I, I think the average context at the moment is somewhere between sort of one and 4,000 characters or something like that so, so the context yeah. is kind of limited you know there's only so much you can do um this new one could easily handle seventy thousand characters so you uh characters was it chunks i can't remember how they described it but basically it was enough to be able to take in an entire text of a book and then give All you right. a pricey back about what was in it you know, and tell you, answer questions about the story and do all that sort of stuff. Because the, the context is both the sort of the context that you're working in and the memory available to be able to go back and keep asking questions about the same thing. As you, I don't know if you've ever noticed, but if you're using something like chat GPT, sort of the further you go, it, it, it kind of sometimes stops being useful anymore. It's like, oh, you're just repeating yourself or, you know. Yeah, the, you, it gets tired. Sort of, yeah, it gets it gets sort of tired and and kind of goes off the rails a little bit, and that's because the the context has started to lose the initial part of the conversation and it's gone away, and it and it's focusing on just maybe the last three or four um, sort of questions and responses. So, yeah, it's then lost the context of what you were working on, and it can kind of go off the rails a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I I always wish I could ask it about itself to be like, do you still remember what we st were talking about? Like, you know, thing things like that. But yeah. maybe, yeah. <laughs> well, the answer would be yes, because the model is designed to be convincing in its answers. That's that's one of the things that you notice about these is that they are purposefully designed to create convincing text, even when it's completely wrong. 
or, or, or you know, yeah, no, I'm absolutely fine. I think you're fine. And, uh, it's you who's got the problem. <laughs> that's, that's, no. it, that's 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 why it'll be perfect at being a programmer. It'll it'll, it'll work out very well. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, but it's well, a well, brilliant, brilliant thing. It's a it's a great area, and 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 the stuff every 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 week I see something new that I think, oh, that's clever. That's a really good, uh, you know, use case. I could see that being uh, in, influential in some way. So yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It'll be interesting to see what if the more options you get if you run things locally. Maybe one day I can just download something and run it instead of having to know what to do and I'll I'll, I'll check that out. I can I can show you after the show. It's like it's, it's ridiculously easy. Mm, oh, maybe maybe today is tomorrow. No. Tomorrow is today. <laughs> <laughs> well, well the other thing I wanted to talk about just briefly like I think since last time we talked, I uh, you know we had our, our we have our state of Kubernetes uh, survey which which I, I've uh, made a lot of stuff out of. And there's two more posts that I wrote about, uh, I think if I remember the one we talked about last time was about like the, the multi-cloud like management, like people using multiple things. And I've since uh, published one about like the, the benefits to developers and, and the business side and also the tools uh, that, that people use. And I think, you know, the fun thing about the tools thing is being a vendor, of course, we're interested in tools people would pay for. Uh, which is which is a fun set of responses to get. And if if uh, you know when you look at the tools people are willing to pay for, it's more or less what you would expect. Like essentially doing, uh, you know, people like to say monitoring nowadays, but like keeping up with the the runtime status if things are going well uh, with with your old Kubernetes stuff. And people are always interested in paying for uh, security tools and uh, things like that, of course, which which is fine, uh, but. You know, the, the other thing I, I, I wanted to check in because I, I also like have encountered some some sentiment from people recently. In fact, there was a thread just yesterday in a Slack channel that I, I'm in. I was looking for some uh, some recommendations of people who would talk about like, you know, what what developers should know about Kubernetes. And in true technical expert fashion, this this conversation quickly devolved into questioning the premise of the question. Uh, and at that point, I was like, oh, looks like it's time for me to go make dinner. Y'all have fun with this conversation. <laughs> uh, but, you know, this is this is like the perennial question of, uh, of of Kubernetes things is how how directly are you expecting developers to access this thing? And, you know, I think I think we, we contemplate this often. We don't really know for for a little while. Uh, but, you know, the the one thing that at least I think. We'll see that I, I I've, been, I've been thinking I am pretty confident in the following statement that unless you have some, you know, I guess, pun intended edge case, uh, probably you're just going to use like whatever managed Kubernetes stuff that the big cloud vendors have out there. And maybe you'll you'll have a reason to like have to run it on your own. But I think a lot of this consternating and discussion and 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 stuff that it's complex, like a lot of it is like removed if you don't actually have to like run and manage the, the the Kubernetes distro. And, or let me phrase that another way. I would hope it was because if that's not included and people saying Kubernetes is complex and it's a lot worse <laughs> if people don't take that into account. 
I, th I think there's a chance that there are two schools of thought on this as a, as a, as a developer, you know, I've been around developers a lot and I've been in development teams a lot. And I think it sort of boils down to, to developers too broad a title, right? It's just, it's just really, really broad. And I think if you're the sort of developer who really likes fiddling about with Kubernetes and um, getting involved in the weeds of how that's all operating and making, uh, you know, making all that stuff work, then you should go and join the platform engineering team because you'll be happy like every day. That's right. You'll be skipping into work because you'll have that stuff to do in abundance. But if you're the sort of developer who perhaps prefers to be working with end users and gathering requirements and making you know end users dreams come true if you know what i mean that's probably not going to happen by by moving the levers on kubernetes so you're probably more in the sort of user satisfaction space if you like and i i, right, I think right. there's a sort of a rough sort of separation there i think there's definitely there's definitely developers who enjoy doing both but if your primary sort of, you know, enjoyment comes from digging down into the technology and being in the weeds, you're probably a platform engineer and you probably really enjoy that space. So you should probably, you know, try and try and spend some try and get more time in that space if you're not in it already. Yeah, no, I, I think that distinction is uh, is key. And I try to be disciplined about saying application developers versus whatever. But it is uh, it can be very difficult to tell in surveys and commentary uh, if if it's sort of like infrastructure or platform developers or engineers, I guess, or uh, more application developers. I think I think that's a fun distinction. Is if if you were to say engineer, that perhaps means lower down the stack than uh, when you say developer, which always feels to me a little more like you know that's your uh, comes to work in in like flip flops and and. Uh, just, you know, Iron Man t-shirts and things like that. Yeah. I think your application developers, whereas, you know, the engineers, I think they might wear pants uh, is, is, you know, and, and longer, uh, more formal dress, probably what, what they show up in. Maybe it also comes down to whether or not you're willing to be on call. Because ah, if, yes. if you're if you're dipping about in in the sort of Kubernetes space, you know, and people are relying on you to for, for those for those reliability numbers, you know, the five nines and all that then it's more likely than not that sooner or later you're going to get a call in two in two in the morning you know <laughs> to try yeah. and sort something out that doesn't tend to happen much in the yeah. kind of user satisfaction space you know there's no user suddenly uh has a bright idea at two in the morning and really must uh you know have a brainstorm around a whiteboard yeah yeah I, maybe maybe the application developer's creed is no nines here just like, not, <laughs> not... <laughs> I think, I think they, they, got, they have a t-shirt with one of those big uh, red signs that's crossed out that has a nine. <laughs> like, oh, everyone's welcome, but you know, you, you have your, you know what your own preferences are. If you're okay with being woken up at two in the morning, then, you know, again, probably platform engineers, a good space. Now, uh, now, now speaking, speaking of, uh, you know, the, the ongoing trend of like, uh, you know, the bumpy waters of, uh, of the hype cycle which which seems to accelerate more and it seems to repeat itself we we go you know kind of like uh, bumpy waves you kind of slap your boat along like what's what's your take on the recent uh microservices versus monolith commentary ben i think you know just to summarize some some uh amazon prime video streaming people they wrote this blog post that they moved from a serverless 
back to a monolith application. Oh, yeah. And this created a whole big hoopla on both sides of like, oh, you know, serverless and microservices were always ridiculous. And then as often happens, the sort of uh, champion is the wrong word, but the, 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 ra the, the level-headed semi-boosters of microservices came in and they're like, well, we've always said it depends. That, you know, it's not like, it's not a 100% thing that you use that. And, you know, here's here's links and footnotes and citations to us saying it's always depends. And, uh, you know, I always feel like there's a third part left out, which is, let's call them the uh, the just like consumer developer who who's like, yeah, I thought that was what we were supposed to all be doing at this point. So that between these three forces, it's always like a, uh, a, a little, a little, uh, tri-cornered spider diagram of of weirdness that's happening but what's what's your uh what's what's your summarization what have we learned from the most recent brouhaha of uh monoliths versus microservices and serverless um i think you know personally i was over it years ago like the whole argument between these two you know types if you look into stuff that um ollie does for example on the spring team Sorry, Ollie, your surnames escaped me for a second. But um, Ollie's doing microliths, for example, where you there know, you go. You might, you might design something in and imagine it in a in a monolithic fashion for deployment, but it's constructed in such a way that you can then break those pieces apart and start to use them as microservices if you want to. But there's flexibility right. in the design to allow you to either coalesce them together or separate them apart at will as you wish using things like event-driven architecture for example so you know it's interesting to see all that stuff going on um i was never totally a fan of microservices for everything because it tend i mean particularly with rest for example it tended to introduce a lot of architectural issues that you then had to solve elsewhere um, you know, with other patterns. So um, I'll think of a good example of that and put it in the show notes. But um, but there are there are se there are several sort of issues with with that, um, which you then start to compensate for by having lots of other things all around you, like um, a gateway, for example. Mm. Uh, you know, where you've got lots of um, tools inside the gateway to compensate for other issues that you might have, like services disappearing and coming back because the network's not very reliable. You know? So <laughs> right, right. all sorts of issues are around that, particularly with, with REST. And I, I spent a lot of time doing event-driven architecture instead where you, you, you're messaging rather than using HTTP and then some of those problems go away, right? So I'm over it. It's like, yeah, do do what makes sense. Don't do what is popular. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I mean, it it seems like 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 uh my my feel of it again. I haven't programmed since two thousand five, so what do I know? But like you know, my my program feel was always like, yeah, it's a good idea to think make things like modular and uh, have kind of clear boundaries between them, and uh, you should do that. And, it, and if you need for it to be like a network, network components that talk with each other, then do that as well. And if you need to like deal with unreliable things and shifting stuff around, then you should add that in as well. But like beyond that, I, I, I don't know if there's that much new going on. I mean, other than just redoing it. And then, and then you get to the point where uh, 
you know, I, I wrote this up recently in my newsletter that it's it's bad to like bad. It's not preferred to uh, kind of talk about the benefits of something to market something based on the uh, the sharp bag of knives theory, which is like, you know, and I think all of us have been guilty of this kind of like talking about stuff to sort of be like, oh, microservices are awesome, but they're really complicated. So you need to like, like, you know, the classic thing from, I think, uh, even like a Martin Fowler blog was like the sign of like, you know, you need to be this tall to ride the ride to get all these great benefits. You need to deal with the complexity because it's very dangerous and weird. And, you know, that, that kind of conversation about me always strikes me as like, well, sounds like this isn't good for me to use then. I'll just go back to what I was doing. Like, it. Yeah, I don't, I, think, <clears throat> I don't know. I don't know what you think, but I feel like I've noticed a lot less tub thumping about serverless in the last sort of mm. year or so as well. And this was also included in this blog from Amazon, wasn't it? That they were moving yeah. away from their own serverless technology to sort of get better performance by not using it anymore. So. I don't know. Serverless is perhaps another one of those things that I don't know if I've noticed as many people caring as deeply about it recently as perhaps a year ago or two years ago. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll have to we'll have to check in, and uh, after after uh, you know in a couple of months after another sausage corner, we'll we'll check in <laughs> on if if uh, Kubernetes should be used directly by uh, by developers, and uh, if Serverless is finally going to like bust out of the uh, the kind of market share concern that it has uh at the moment and by concern i don't mean worrying i just mean activity isn't that a meaning of the word concern like a, a going concern like a going yeah. business that you have uh, probably Works definition number four I'm not really sure well speaking of definition number four i think the fourth thing we need to go over is that uh, you've been listening to tanzu talk or watching it and if you want to get the show notes uh for this episode you can go to tanzutalk.com and uh find them for, for this episode and uh, or if you're watching the video you can just look below in the description and uh, I'll have put show notes there once I publish it after the uh, streaming here and with that we'll see everyone next time bye bye